You are listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast with Dr. Rosalind Morrell, episode 16, an overview of colorectal cancer. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer from A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morrell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Cancer from A to Z podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am really happy that you are here. And today we are going to talk about rectal cancer. And it is a huge topic. It's generally when we talk about it, we talk about it with colorectal cancer. So today's episode, I wanted to touch upon and just focus on rectal cancer. And then I'm going to do a second episode later on about anal cancer. But today's topic is definitely going to focus on rectal cancer. And then again, I'll also do an episode on colon cancer. And so before we begin, I do want to let you know I am suffering from a cold. So I'm going to try and not sniffle into the microphone. And I hope Hopefully my voice will hold up, but I just wanted to give you that little bit of a heads up. So I want to start off by talking a little bit about the statistics because that is really helpful in terms of putting this cancer into um, perspective. And so we know that in the United States, it's estimated that in 2022, there will be approximately 106,000 colon cancers diagnosed and there will be about 44,000 rectal cancers diagnosed. Worldwide, it's approximately the third most common cancer diagnosed. Again, that's colorectal cancer. And in the United States, it's the fourth most common cancer diagnosed. Unfortunately, even in 2022, it is the second leading cause of cancer deaths in the United States. And for reasons that we are not sure about at this time, the actual incidence of colorectal cancer is increasing among young young adults. And we are actively investigating that. But at this point in time, we're not quite sure what's going on. But for whatever reason, the incidence is increasing in young adults. And that is also some of the basis in terms of why the screening recommendations have changed. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit later. But the screening recommendations have gone from starting colonoscopies and screening for colorectal cancer at age 50 down to age 45. So what is colon cancer? Well, I think what we need to do is actually start with our GI tract and what is our GI tract. So our GI tract starts, there's an upper and a lower. 
and the, you can get cancers in both the upper GI tract as well as the lower GI tract. So our upper GI tract starts with the esophagus and our esophagus then goes into our stomach and we then have our intestines and along the way we have some other structures such as the pancreas and the gallbladder and the liver. And then you're again going back to the intestines, you have your small intestines and your large intestines. And generally when we talk about the colon, we are talking about the large intestines. And that consists of the ascending colon, the transverse colon, the descending colon, and then you have your sigmoid colon, and then that enters into the rectum, and then at the um, very end is your anus. And you can get colorectal cancer or colon cancer in any part of the colon. However, when we talk about colon cancer, we do divide that between the colon and the rectum. So when we talk about colon cancer, we're specifically talking about the ascending colon, transverse colon, descending colon, and sigmoid colon. Whereas when we're talking about rectal cancer, that is a cancer that's actually found in the rectum. And then we also divide out the anus because those cancers have different types of tissue involved or what we call histology. And so that's important. That's an important distinction to make. So what are the risks associated with getting colorectal cancer? And we know that the exact cause is unknown. It's very different than, let's say, lung cancer, which was my last episode. We, ha- we know that there's a very, very, very strong correlation between smoking and getting lung cancer, but that's very different for colorectal cancer. We do know that there are certain hereditary syndromes that will put you at increased risk for colon cancer, and those syndromes can include Lynch syndrome, which is also called hereditary non-polyposis colon cancer, and essentially It's in very, very basic terms. It's essentially mutations in the DNA repair genes. Another type of um, hereditary risk factor can be familial adenomatous polyposis, which again, in very simplistic terms, is essentially mutations that are found in tumor suppressor genes. And there's one particular one called the APC, which if there are mutations in that gene, then that can allow for uncontrolled cell growth. And that can lead to polyps for those um, patients who suffer from that hereditary syndrome. We have a, uh, and there's another one called Putz Jaeger syndrome that can also increase your risk. But some of the other factors include obesity, smoking, having other cancers. So if you've been diagnosed with, Uh, cervical cancer or vaginal cancer. We do know getting a second cancer can be a factor. Inflammatory bowel disease is another risk factor for colorectal cancer, as well as a personal history of cancer. Again, going back to whether you've had cancer in the past, as well as type 2 diabetes. So those are the risk factors for getting colorectal cancer. So how do we screen for it? Well, we know that colonoscopy 
is essentially the gold standard. But over the years, there have been other things that have been developed. And I am going to do in the future a whole episode on screening for colorectal cancer because it is quite involved and there are a number of different ways to go about screening for this type of cancer. And so I think a whole episode should be dedicated to that. But for today's episode, since we're going to focus on rectal cancer, I want to kind of do more of a general overview, and then we'll get into the screening on a different episode. But let's go through them. So we know that, again, there's colonoscopy. Flexible sigmoidoscopy is another one. The fecal occult blood test, or FIT, um, is another uh, screening test. CT colonography double contrast barium enema, and then checking the stool DNA. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the guidelines in terms of screening have changed. And at this time, both the American Cancer Society and the United States Preventive Service Task Force recommend that for those who are at average risk, meaning you do not have a hereditary syndrome, you do not have a very strong family history, that people at average risk should be screened starting at age 45. Again, this is new. It used to be age 50, but now it is 45. And we know right now, based on some of the things that we are seeing, that the majority of those who have been diagnosed with colorectal cancer at at a young age, that the majority of those diagnoses and the deaths, unfortunately, are occurring in, in people age 45 to 49. But again, the incidence of colon cancer is increasing in even younger adults. So we're, we're seeing a 1.3% per year increase in individuals diagnosed with colorectal cancer from ages 40 to 49, and a 2% increase per year in those age 20 to 29 years old. Um, So that's specifically for colon cancer. When it comes to rectal cancer, we're also seeing increase by 3.2% per year in 20 to 29 year olds and a 2.3% increase per year in those age 40 to 49. So we're Unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of these younger individuals getting this di- this disease, and we, again, are actively researching and trying to get a better understanding as to what exactly is going on. So when you have symptoms, what could you potentially be complaining about, or what are some of the things that you may experience if you have colorectal cancer? Well, a lot of times early cancers may not cause any symptoms at all. You may not have anything. You may not have weight loss. You may not have rectal bleeding. You may not have, you may not notice anything, which again is the reason why we have screening tests for this cancer. And it's very important to have those screening tests performed at the right time. However, there are some individuals who will experience some symptoms. They can have blood in the stool, abdominal pain, or an abdominal mass that they feel. The stools can actually change in what we call caliber, so shape, so to speak. The stools sometimes can become thinner, um, and you will definitely see that when you have a cancer that's found in the ascending colon. 
Other individuals can have diarrhea. There can be some level of fatigue and iron deficiency anemia. So if an individual is presenting and complaining of those symptoms, it's going to be really important that the physician do a workup, which we're absolutely going to do. And more than likely, that's going to involve imaging the colon uh, and the rectum with a colonoscopy. And usually, again, that is the gold standard because that type of scan um, or scope actually is looking at the entire colon, whereas like a flexible sigmoidoscopy is only going to the sigmoid colon um, as well as looking at the rectum. However, uh, a colonoscopy is examining the entire colon. If a mass is seen during that exam or if polyps are seen, usually those polyps are removed and sent off for further evaluation. Um, And if a mass is seen, then typically, again, a biopsy will be done and tissue um, is taken from that area for evaluation. Other types of workup include a CBC, so a complete blood count. We're looking at CEA as well, which is a type of um, abnormality sometimes that you can see in the blood when you have a GI cancer. CT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis so that we can get some imaging of the other organs in the body, and we're going to want to do that in terms of getting that imaging done of the entire body. So we're going to image the chest as well as the abdomen, as well as the pelvis to make sure no other abnormalities are showing up in the other organs. MRI is important and sometimes PET CT. Endoscopic ultrasound is sometimes ordered, but right now MRI is actually becoming more popular in terms of evaluating a rectal cancer for sure because the MRI gives us such beautiful images of the soft tissue and you can really see uh, a very distinct level of detail because what becomes important for rectal cancer is understanding and knowing the depth of invasion through the rectal wall. However, if an MRI is contraindicated for whatever reason, then we will do an endoscopic ultrasound, which is also giving you information about the tumor and how much invasion into the rectal wall there is. Other types of testing that we perform when a biopsy has been done and we have evaluated the mass and it's shown to be cancerous, we will order molecular biomarker tests. We know that there are certain biomarkers that are important in terms of treatment and how we treat these types of cancers. So we will do that testing. And so if you get a copy of your pathology report, you may see that information on your pathology report. We're looking at basically DNA mismatch repair and microsatellite instability changes. And again, this information is helping to drive the treatment for rectal cancer. And so it's very important that if a mass is found in the rectum and shown to be cancerous, that these additional tests are done and reported on the pathology report. The staging of colon cancer as well as rectal cancer, they're both the same. So we do have staging for these types of cancers. 
and in early stage cancers, essentially we're looking at how far it's invading into the layers of the colon in the rectum. And that's going to guide our TNM staging, T standing for tumor, N standing for nodal involvement, and M standing for metastasis. And the staging for T1, we have T1, T2, T3, T4. And again, that involves how much invasion there is into the wall of the colon and rectum. And the further or the deeper um, the invasion, the higher the T stage. So for instance, a T1 lesion, the tumor is going to invade into the submucosa through the muscularis mucosa, but not into the muscularis propria. Now, again, those are just layers of the of the wall of the colon and the rectum, and that is what that is referring to. Whereas a T4 lesion, it's going to be where the cancer is actually invading or adhering into adjacent structures. So those structures can show tumor involvement. And then if that's the case, again, that will increase the T stage. Nodal disease is important, and that will also guide the the end staging. And if there's any evidence of metastases, that will also cause you to have an M1 lesion. And all of that is part of our staging system, and we do have prognostic groups. So most people have heard of stage 1 cancer, stage 2, stage 3, stage 4. And so the individual T stage as well as the N uh, classification and the M classification, we group them into those different stages. And so, for instance, a stage one colon cancer, according to the most recent staging manual, will include either a T1 N0 M0 cancer as well as a T2 N0 M0, whereas a stage Two, for instance, let's say it's 2A, that's going to be a T3 N0 M0. So it can be a little complicated, um, definitely uh, a little confusing for those who are not always looking at the staging system for the different types of cancer. So just understand that for colon cancer, there's stage one, stage two, which is broken down into A, B, and C. There's stage three, also broken down into A, B, and C, and stage four, and you can have a 4A, a 4B, and a 4C. So if you have been diagnosed with colon cancer, ask your oncologist what stage you are, and they should be able to tell you. And going into the treatment for colon cancer, we know that typically colon cancer is treated with surgery and a lot of times chemotherapy. And the types of surgery can include an open colectomy um, versus a minimally invasive colectomy versus robotic. And again, adjuvant therapy can consist of chemotherapy. It is rare for radiation to be indicated for colon cancer. We definitely use radiation for rectal cancer, which I'm going to get into and talk about in just uh, a few minutes. However, that we do sometimes use radiation if the person is inoperable. So if the tumor is so advanced that they are unable to undergo surgery, or sometimes it can be related to comorbidities. 
Um, sometimes we will use radiation along with the chemotherapy, but typically um, radiation therapy is, is not used for colon cancer. Okay, um, I'm not going to touch upon too much about the, the chemotherapy for colon cancer because there is a lot of information in that particular area, and I think it would be best to kind of go in-depth regarding the chemotherapy for colon cancer when I have a medical oncologist on the show. And that will be a really good episode and we can deep dive into the different types of chemotherapy and how they're administered and what are the side effects. But for purposes of this generalized overview of colorectal cancer with an emphasis on rectal cancer today, I am going to just say that adjuvant therapy a lot of times will consist of uh, chemotherapy and some of those drugs. You'll hear things, names like Folfox and Kapox and some additional drugs that can be used in the treatment of colon cancer. But what I want to do now is talk about rectal cancer and specifically rectal cancer. And and I mentioned that this episode was going to be about rectal cancer, but I felt like I needed to give that background on colon cancer as well, since typically when you hear about rectal cancer, you'll hear or read where it will say colorectal cancer. So they kind of group them together in the media and in the literature, but they are treated differently and there are a little bit other, there are some other differences in terms of between colon cancer and rectal cancer, um, in addition to just location and, and anatomy. All right, so let's talk about if you have been diagnosed with rectal cancer. The most common type of histology for rectal cancer is what we call adenocarcinoma. Now, you can get other types of cancer involving the rectum, like lymphoma or other types of cancers, but typically it's going to be an adenocarcinoma. And the workup is going to be pretty much what I described, but as part of the workup, it will include an MRI. And the MRIs that are done, and it's going to be typically an MRI of the of the pelvis, or it may be what they call an MRI of the rectum, gives us so much information about the cancer. These exams are so sophisticated and give us a level of detail like we haven't had before. And of course, MRI has been around for a really long time and we do MRIs in, all t- in other parts of the body. However, it's really um, has been beneficial for surgeons like colorectal surgeons, uh, medical oncologists, and radiation oncologists in terms of treating rectal cancer. And what the MRIs tell us essentially is that it tells us the location of the tumor. We know that that is important in terms of where in the rectum. Your rectum is divided between the upper rectum, the mid-rectum, and the lower rectum. And we want to know exactly what part of the rectum uh, the tumor is located in. And again, going back to, you know, is this an adenocarcinoma? Well, of course, the MRI is not going to tell you that, but the biopsy will have told you if it's an adenocarcinoma. But the MRI will help us get the T stage. And again, that's going back to the location of the invasion. And so you can actually see that on MRI. And so as part of the report that you get 
on the MRI, it will tell you whether this is a T2 lesion or T3 or possibly a T4. The other things that are important in terms of the MRI, we want to, we talk about what we call the circumferential resection margin. And that is a margin that is very important for the surgeon to operate on and remove. And our literature and all of our data and evidence-based medicine tells us that if that margin is clear, patients actually do better. And so for an MRI, we want to know if there's any involvement of the tumor in that area or any involvement of any type of lymph nodes or tumor deposits. That becomes very important and because if there's any evidence that there's cancer involving that area, there's a possibility that if surgery is performed, that all of the cancer is not removed. So we kind of want to know that ahead of time and that guides our treatment. And so the MRI can actually tell us that. In addition, the MRI can tell us about suspicious uh, lymph nodes in the area, what we call mesorectal lymph nodes. And it can also tell us about additional lymph nodes outside of that area. Again, it will also uh, identify where in the rectum the cancer is located. So if it's the upper, if it's the mid, um, or if it's the lower portion. And on the MRI, you can actually measure the size or the length of the cancer. And we also like to know how far it is from the anus or from the kind of the outer aspect of the anus, which is what we call like the anal verge. So that's right where um, the orifice is and where, you know, it's starting to enter through um, up into the uh, anus. And so we measure from that area, again, called the anal verge to the tip of the tumor. And so the radiologist will also give us that information as well. And then tell us also if there's any evidence of what we call vascular uh, invasion. So any evidence that the cancer cells or cancer has gotten into some of the uh, vasculature. All right, going back to rectal cancer and talking a little bit about the details regarding rectal cancer. We know that the location is important also from a, a surgery standpoint. The, uh, the rectum is about 15 centimeters in length. And if you have a cancer in the upper rectum, kind of near the sigmoid colon, depending upon exactly where that is, can actually change how we treat things. And it can change whether we actually will do chemo radiation or whether it's just um, surgery at that point. So again, the anatomy is really important in that MRI tells us that information. The colonoscopy tell us, tells us that information. And if the patient, of course, has had surgery um, already, then we're going to know that information as well. Going back to the histology, approximately 90% of, of these cancers are adenocarcinoma, but again, you can get squamous cell carcinomas in the rectum, you can get lymphomas, and you can get sarcomas as well. Okay, so I talked a lot about the background of it. Let's talk a little bit about how we treat rectal cancer. And it's changed um, over the years, and it um, has evolved as most of oncology has because we're always doing research and we're always doing clinical trials. And so all of our evidence-based medicine guides what we do. So the primary therapy 
in essentially, it depends upon, again, a thorough evaluation of the clinical stage. Having that information tells us what we do. And in very simple terms, having that information tells us whether the patient should get chemo and radiation ahead of time before the surgery or the patient should be taken for surgery or how much uh, uh, or how involved the surgery is, a lot of things. But surgery is uh, one of the major components of treatment for rectal cancer. We know that you can do what we call a transanal local excision if you have a very early stage rectal cancer, very small. You can perform other things such as transanal endoscopic microsurgery, or sometimes it involves a transabdominal resection. As part of that, as part of the transabdominal resection, there can be a low anterior resection. And again, depends upon where the cancer is. So if it's low in the rectum, um, that may be the case. And what surgeons are mostly doing when they surgically remove the cancer is that they're doing what we call a total mesorectal excision where we're taking out that tissue that surrounds the rectum. We're taking out the vasculature, the lymphatics, um, and the fascia. And again, going back to that margin that I mentioned just a few minutes ago, that is also removed and very important. And if a total mesorectal excision is performed, we know that actually that can decrease the recurrence rates. So the type of surgery is extremely, um, has become very important in terms of decreasing the chance of these cancers coming back. If those types of surgery can't be done, then sometimes patients need what we call an APR or, or an abdominal perineal resection. Most of our treatment for rectal cancer will involve chemotherapy and radiation. And the treatment approach is evolving for advanced rectal cancers. And we have clinical trials that have looked at the type of surgery and whether we should be doing chemo and radiation before the surgery or whether we should do it after. And we do have evidence that chemotherapy and radiation together given before the surgery is very beneficial. So if there are patients who can have that treatment before surgery, we try to do that. That's also called preoperative chemoradiation, also called neoadjuvant therapy. And this is even evolving as well. So neoadjuvant therapy historically has been where we give chemotherapy along with five weeks of radiation uh, therapy to the pelvis, and then the patient goes for surgery. That was the chemotherapy and the radiation starting at the same time. However, our evidence-based medicine, I keep saying it because it's very, very true, has shown that another type of therapy, which is called total neoadjuvant therapy, which can involve essentially long course chemotherapy. So we're talking like 12 to 16 weeks of chemotherapy first, followed by chemoradiation, or it can be where it's long course chemoradiation initially. So the chemo and the radiation start at the same time and you're getting about five weeks of treatment, followed by 12 to 16 weeks of chemotherapy. And there's another way where we're actually doing what we call short course radiation therapy, where we're doing 
treatments over like five treatments. So total neoadjuvant therapy and neoadjuvant therapy are usually the most common way that we're treating rectal cancers. However, there are situations where we will give the chemo and the radiation after surgery. But again, I just wanted to touch upon that these are the different ways that we are treating rectal cancer. Now, if we do neoadjuvant therapy, we are restaging patients afterwards with imaging to see if they have responded to the treatment. A lot of times those patients will still go on to surgery, but there are a select few of patients who will actually have a complete response from the neoadjuvant therapy and potentially could be monitored and not actually go for surgery. But several things have to be evaluated when that determination is made. So that's not taken lightly. And again, a very thorough evaluation by all physicians involved is done. But again, there are some patients who are not going for a surgery because they have completely responded to the neoadjuvant therapy. And that is what is making this type of treatment very, very exciting. We know that when you are able to give the chemo and the radiation before surgery, there can be better compliance. It's much easier for patients to handle that um, before the surgery. We know that by doing that, we also can decrease the chance of distant metastases because you're taking care of those small cancer cells. You're killing off those small cancer cells that can actually get into the blood and the lymphatics and travel to other parts of the body. And that's how you get metastatic disease. So we know that neoadjuvant therapy can actually decrease that from happening. And again, decrease toxicity. And we're seeing that that clinical response that that I just mentioned, that about 20 to 40% of the patients are getting a complete clinical response. So it's quite exciting and and patients are surviving and doing well um, with this type of treatment. Okay, well, that was a quick overview of colorectal cancer. As I mentioned at the beginning, this is a very big subject, a lot to talk about, a lot to talk about when it comes to the chemotherapy, plenty to talk about when it comes to surgery for this, as well as screening, as well as radiation therapy, so on and so on. So I knew that I could not cover everything in one episode for colorectal cancer. So we are going to revisit this um, episode or excuse me, revisit this topic in the future I am going to have a medical oncologist come on and we're going to deep dive into chemotherapy. And I am excited to also have a colorectal surgeon come on the show and we're going to talk about surgery and we're going to talk about screening and because there's a lot more to get into when it comes to colorectal cancer. I touched briefly upon the radiation aspects for this cancer And uh, we will be doing a little bit of a deeper dive on the radiation therapy aspects of it too. Another future episode will be on anal cancer, not quite as common as cancers in the colon and the rectum, but still an extremely important cancer to talk about. I see plenty of anal cancers in my clinic 
And the treatment is different, different than colon, different than rectum. And it's amazing, again, how our treatments will vary depending upon the location in the body of these cancers, even though you're talking still about the, you know, just the colon and and the GI tract. So colon and rectal cancer and anal cancer are considered lower GI cancers. And then we also have the upper GI cancers, which will be a future episode. So you can see that the... This is quite a bit of information, and that's why I wanted to even do the podcast because I think it can be overwhelming, a lot of information, a lot of conflicting information on the Internet. And I, as a radiation oncologist, I felt like it was my duty to, to put this information out there and, and hopefully make it in a, in a clear way. So I am going to stop here. I can tell that my voice is giving out. um, And unfortunately, I am not feeling well, but hopefully that's going to, I'm going to feel better very soon. And um, I know it's not COVID, so um, I'm happy about that. But thank you so much for joining me today. And if you know someone who could benefit from this information, please pass it on. And I would love it also if you would uh, leave me a review. Let me know how I'm doing. Let me know if, if this is resonating with you and if you like hearing this information. And you can always um, go over to my website at www centerpointoncology.com or the other website that I have, which is www.cancerfromatoz.com. Leave me a message. And again, let me know how I'm doing and uh, what subjects you would like to hear or from what uh, healthcare providers you'd like to hear from. I'm excited to bring on a, some nutritionists, as well as social workers and get into some of those subject areas. So I'm going to end as I always do. And I'm going to say until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.